Welcome to episode 516 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with journalist, author, and founder of the Sondheim Review, Paul Salcini. We talk with Paul from his home in Wisconsin about his Italian immigrant parents, how he got into appreciating musical theater, writing for the New York Times, the Milwaukee Journal, and the Milwaukee Sentinel, a letter he received from Stephen Sondheim in 1984 regarding eagle building, phone calls with Stephen Sondheim, his memoir, just recently published, called Sondheim and Me, Revealing a Musical Genius. We also talk about his novels set in Tuscany, among other things, a grand conversation with Paul Salcini this go-round. We have an EWSA titled Intelligence. We share a piece published in the March 20, 2023 issue of the New Yorker magazine titled How to Tell if You're in a TV Show, written by Emma Rathbone. We have an EW poem called Paperboy. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 516 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours.
intelligence. I am not intimidated by your intelligence and your power. This is why you should value our discussions. Yes, I said this to the provost and academic dean. I'm not sure it was received the way in which I intended it to be, with a sense of oneness and equanimity. Human organization in its more backward approaches does not value open, vigorous discourse. We often have trouble with even agreeing on the facts and figures. I suppose it is about fear and control and greed and ego. This list surely overlaps with redundancy. I write and read these words for the radio without concern that my colleagues at work, in particular my bosses, might hear them because they won't have the interest or take the time to listen. It is a shallow and cynical place. Have you ever heard the phrase, steal your face? It's a disheartening day-to-day in this privileged place. I work to navigate it with goodwill, earnestly operating with verve and grace. How does one find true meaning in this miracle of a chase? Lost and found, all around, spinning and winning as we exist for a short while in this space. Playgoers, I bid you welcome. The theater is a temple, and we are here to worship the gods of comedy and tragedy. Tonight, I am pleased to announce a comedy. We shall employ every device we know in our desire to divert you. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Old situations, new complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. Something convulsive, something repulsive, something for everyone, a comedy tonight, something aesthetic, something frenetic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight, nothing with gods, nothing with fate, weighty affairs will just have to wait, nothing that's formal, Nothing that's normal No recitations to recite Open up the curtains Comedy tonight 
Something erratic, something dramatic, something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Frenzy and frolic, strictly symbolic. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Paul Salcini, is that you? This is me. Paul, it's uh, nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. This is E.W. Conundrum. Thank you for calling me. Oh, pleasure. Can you hear me okay? I hear you beautifully, yes. Okay. Uh, Before we get started, uh, let me share a little background information with our listeners. Okay. Paul Salcini was a reporter editor and staff development director for the Milwaukee Journal for 37 years and a correspondent for the New York Times for 15 years. He also taught journalism courses and a musical theater history course at Marquette University. In 1994, he founded the Sondheim Review, a magazine devoted to the works of legendary composer-lyricist Stephen Sondheim. Paul was its editor for 10 years. Paul's memoir, titled Sondheim and Me, Revealing a Musical Genius, was published this past October 2022 by Bancroft Press. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Paul Salcini. So again, sir, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'd love to be here. Yes, our associate producer, if you haven't figured it out, Dr. Michael Pavis, he's a very big fan of uh, Stephen Sondheim, and he uh, made certain we had you on the program because uh, he believes the work that you've done with him and the information you've gathered about him is so valuable. Well, I thank him for doing that. I'm glad to be here, and uh, I thank anybody who is a fan of Stephen Sondheim. Well, you know, I'm curious, uh, how, how before we get into some more specific questions, Tell us a bit about your background. Like, how did you get to where you are now? 
Well, well, it's been a long time, of course. Uh, I I, uh, grew up in Upper Michigan uh, in a little town called Hubble. My father was an immigrant from Italy, from a little town in Tuscany. He came over to work in a copper mine in Upper Michigan. And my mother's parents were born in the same town in Tuscany, so both of my sides of my family are rooted in the same town. Uh, I always wanted to be a journalist, and I went to Marquette University and got a journalism degree, got on the Milwaukee Journal uh, shortly afterwards, and as you just said, I was there for 37 years in various capacities. And uh, was your mom also an immigrant, or did your dad meet your mom here? No, uh, my my mother's parents were born in that little town. They had five sons and a daughter. My father roomed with them, and that's how he met my mother. Oh, so, when he when he uh, came here, he roomed w- with them. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. I, I'm Italian American myself. My parents are, are uh, from from uh, Calabria. They're also immigrants. Uh-huh. So I, right. Right. I find, yeah, it's very fascinating stuff. But um, more about than. Sondheim and musical theater and all that. Did you just stumble upon that while you were working as a journalist, or did you have a love for it and then try to seek out uh, that that sort of a world? I sort of stumbled on it. I was always interested in musical theater, <clears throat> and I went to plays and and uh, and collected LP records and that sort of thing. But I was sent to New York in 1972 for a business trip and went to a show called Follies, which just blew me away. uh, It was so interesting. It was a story on the surface of two couples attending a reunion of showgirls who had been in Follies reviews, but it was more than that. It was a story of love and loss, past and present, failure and redemption, missed opportunities, unforgivable mistakes. In short, it was about the follies of our lives. Mm-hmm. Well, it just blew me away, and I didn't know, really know Stephen Sondheim had written the music for this. Uh, I wasn't aware of him much at all, but this sort of changed my life. I started researching him. I um, I went to shows. I read everything I could about him about his shows, and uh, I just got so enthusiastic about his work, more so than almost any other composer I had studied or been interested in. And and so when you were sent to New York uh, by um, the um, Milwaukee Journal, uh, when, uh, when was that? 1972. 72, 72. Right. So... Uh, at that point, now you're realizing there's this this uh, very compelling uh, artist that I want to find more out about. And and did you, besides just doing some research on your own about his work and, and uh, the like, did you try to connect with him? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I was collecting all this stuff. I had, had books and tapes and articles and everything. And uh, I wanted. I was researching a show call, of his called Saturday Night, which he'd written in 1954, but it was never produced because the producer died. And I, you know, read some things about it, but I was really curious about the score. And uh, I'd never written to Sondheim before, but I found his address, and I wrote him a note. 
and to my surprise, he wrote me back. And you want to hear the letter? <laughs> uh, That'd be a treasure, <laughs> yes. Okay, this is April 26, 1984. Dear Paul Salcini, thanks for the lovely letter. It helps the ego no end, and at a time when ego building is of the essence, enjoy the enclosed. Yours, Stephen Sondheim. I didn't really expect him to answer, and I really didn't know what he meant by ego building until much, much later. Um, but, uh, he, you know, here I was, uh, somebody he'd never heard of, uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of all places. He was in New York, and so he sent me not only this note, but a rare cassette tape of the score for Saturday night. It was recorded at a backer's audition. So this is really rare, very rare, and oh, yes. he just sent it to me. And so it was uh, so amazing that he would do this, and I learned later that that's the kind of man he was. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard that too about him. He's very gracious. Uh, yes. And so that was your first encounter? Uh, or that was, yes. And yes. that was soon after 72? No, it was at 84. Oh, 84. Doing, yeah, at, I was researching and, you know, well, I was working full time. So, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't, didn't occupy my entire life. But um, I did write to him in 1984. And this was during rehearsals for a Sunday in the Park with George. And if, uh, I've since learned that rehearsals were really hectic. Uh, the, they were saying that, uh, it would be a uh, it would close after opening night. That uh, it was just terrible, and and so that's why Sondheim said in his letter that he needed ego building, and it was probably partly his fault because he was supposed to write two two songs for the second act, and he was dawdling and dawdling and dawdling, and <laughs> and he was he, on the day he turned in the first song, he wrote me this letter. Uh, so it was really amazing that he that he took time to do this. Yeah, it sounds like you helped him out in a way. You know, at that it was, a, it was good timing. He, he needed maybe, something. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. And uh, then from that point on, uh, I suppose you you started to connect with him more often. Yes, I, I wrote to him. No, I wrote him notes. Not a lot, maybe five or six over the years, um, asking him questions about rare. Saw rare shows that he'd done. He had done two shows at Williams College uh, that were done there, but never anywhere else. And he's actually sent me sheet music for the, some songs from those shows. And I asked him questions about uh, other things. Um, the, the show called Assassins was was uh, being produced off Broadway, and he commented about how he liked that. And um, you know, just. A casual kind of conversations on with notes over the years, and until uh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, until 1994, and that's when I decided that I wanted to write, uh, publish a magazine uh, about his work. Right, that's the ma magazine I mentioned in the intro, the Sondheim Review. Correct. And when you were writing uh, to him these notes uh, over those several years. Was it just sort of um, uh, notes between, 
I guess, acquaintances or, or people who had mutual interest? Or were you, did he uh, know you were trying to write articles or were you trying to write articles about his work at that point? No, no, no I was not. No, he did not know. Uh, he was simply somebody who was interested in his work and wanted more information about it. Uh, I, I never said and I never planned uh, to do anything more than ha- have this for my own use, my own interest, not my own use. And then when the uh, the Sondheim Review came out in 1994, did you ask him first, or did you not? Well, not ask him, let him know, or did he find out by chance? How did that happen? Yeah, I didn't have to ask his permission, but uh, I thought I should, you know, obviously. Uh, so I wrote him a letter saying this is what I wanted to do. It was going to be a magazine of news and interviews and reviews of his shows and essays and articles and it was going to be journalistic as as you as you noted i'm a journalist and this was going to be a journalistic piece it was not going to be a fanzine um you know a very laudatory thing i it was going to be there would be critical things in it as well as as uh, news and other things um, so I thought I'd better tell him this. So he, I, I expected a note from him uh, when I wrote that. And instead, he called me one Sunday afternoon and said, Hi, this is Steve Sondheim, uh, you know, which kind of blew me away because I'd never talked to him and I, I didn't know we were on a Steve basis. Um, so um, he was interested, though I don't quite know knew if he really understood what it was about, because obviously there were no other magazines like this uh, anywhere except for a newsletter about Kurt Weill, and, but Kurt Weill was dead. Here it was about magazine about a living composer. So he was interested, but then he really, really wanted to talk about his show that he was writing. It was called Passion. And he, I think maybe because of my name, uh, this was a story uh, based on a um, movie and a book called Passione dell'Amore. Uh, and he asked me if I had seen the movie, because you know, I'd seen a lot of Italian movies. I had not seen this one. Do you well, remember the director? Well, Do you remember the director of that? Uh, Scola. Scola, thank you. Yeah. Um, and... Um, it was based on a on a, a novel called Passione by Tarcetti, if that helps you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the following week, he sent me a videotape of the film. Again, I didn't ask for it; it just came in out of the blue. There were this was before DVDs, and there was this movie that was, and his show Passion was based on. So uh, he really wanted to talk about that. He he, lo- he loves to talk about uh, work. He loved, I guess I have to put it in past tense these days, uh, about works that he was in the process of writing, as opposed to works from the past that he he seems to want to move. He seemed to want to move on from one show to another after one was produced. Mm. Yeah, that sounds wise. I think. Uh, yeah, I it, think so. One probably always informs the other anyway, right? In some way, shape, or yes, form. Yes, I think so, yeah. yeah. And uh, 
So what what happened when you wrote something in the Sondheim Review that uh, Stephen maybe didn't agree with? Did he ever let you know about it? Well, there was one <laughs> one famous in- incident. Was well, one incident that stands out because uh, Passion opened on Broadway in 1994, and then there was a production in London <clears throat> two years later. And uh, like all of his shows, we had a reviewer in London who uh, wrote a review for the Sondheim Review uh, that was not, it wasn't negative, I, it really was not. It was constructive, it had made some points that, that the reviewer thought should have been made in the show. Uh, the reviewer had seen Passion in New York, so it came to the London production, informed, uh, knew the show well and made some suggestions. You know, pretty routine, and I put it in the magazine and thought no more about it. And then after it came out, uh, I did not get a letter from Sondheim. I got a phone call. And he was upset, very, very upset. In fact, he started ranting. How could we do this? How could how that reviewer doesn't know anything? The critics were all wonderful aboard. You know, and on it must have been. It seemed like two hours, but it was probably twenty minutes. Uh, went on and on and on, ranting about um, the review. Finally, he hung up, and I shook my hand and wrote him a letter. But even before he got the letter, he wrote me a note in which he libeled the reviewer. I mean, I could not publish this letter because it was libelous. And then uh, about a week later, he called again. <laughs> and again, with this, not quite as vociferous, but again, I was very upset. And then he dropped it. And I have never to this day understood why he was so upset about this rather innocuous review and and then so we resumed our relationship as it had been before and it just still to this day confuses me on why what all that was about yeah yeah i can understand why and it wasn't just an impulsive thing that lasted one hour when he called you the first time it hung around for a bit it seems uh with right. it. Yeah. yes yeah it, it it he must have brooded about this i don't know i can't I'm not a psychologist. I don't understand. No, what, I have I have what, trouble. What right, I have trouble enough trying to figure out my own self. Right, how could you figure out somebody else? Right, right. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but it's it's a good thing. I mean, it's a good sign that afterwards he didn't hold any ill feelings towards you. You guys continued your no. healthy relationship. No, he did not. In fact, uh, in a letter, um, a couple months later, uh, he asked a favor of me. Uh, he he was known for writing at very intricate crossword puzzles that were published in the New York Magazine. And a book was put out uh, collecting them, and it became very, very rare. And I happened to have a copy, but I had given it away in a contest we, but Sondheim Review had done, and so I did not have one. But in a note to me, he Sondheim said, do you have any extra copies of that? I really am looking all over for it. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm afraid not. I don't have one anymore. But, you know, uh, that, that was the kind of relationship we had, I guess. Well, you know, that leads me to uh, another question. Um, you know, what over the years, working on the review, 
and then your memoir, as I mentioned. Um, what what have you gathered about the man? You know, what have you learned about him as a man, as an artist, as well? Well, again, I don't want to psychoanalyze, but I uh, my general feeling, and I thought about this since he died, um, is that he was impulsive. Um, he was moody. He was also very involved in his work and very enthusiastic about it. During the 10 years that I was editor of the magazine, he was writing a show called, originally it was called Wise Guys, and then Gold, and then Bounce, and it finally became Roadshow. And it tried out in uh, Chicago and Washington and got terrible reviews, And but he was so involved in that show. He would call, and he would talk about what he was doing, how he was changing it, how his book writer, um, Weidman, was doing many changes for the, for the book of, it, of the show, and how he hoped that this would work out better, and he was sure that it was going to be good. And, you know, he was just like a, a little kid, uh, you know, excited about something. And that, that was so interesting to me to see a genius, an artist at work uh, and, how, and the process that he, was, that he was in, in changing, willing to change things, very willing. Um, maybe because of the reviews, maybe because he thought of uh, the show better. Um, but that, that was very exciting for me. I would sit back and just smile because it's, it was so interesting. Yeah, well, great way to spend some time, a phone call like yes. that. Yes. And this whole time, you're living in Milwaukee, or did you did you uh, move uh, to New York at, at any point? No, no, these were all, these were all um, one-shot trips. Uh, maybe, you know, whenever a new Sondheim show opened, I would go, and uh, sometimes I'd go to Sondheim shows elsewhere to, as well. Uh, so, no, I I was always in Milwaukee, and and working, so it was just on my vacations and stuff. Did you two ever get out together to have a cup of tea or a beer or something? No, no, I don't, I, I, uh, no. Um, we were to meet at one point, and then something came up, and, and we did not, and um, because of my schedule and his schedule, um, he spent a lot of time in his summer in his other home in Connecticut, so that was uh, also a problem. So, no, uh, we did not do that. And uh, how about the memoir? Did you um, start writing that before he passed, and did he know you were writing it or, or not? No. No. Um, what happened was, after I wrote, after I learned that he died, I, I went through issues of the Sondheim Review, and I went through his notes, and I thought, this is really interesting. So I wrote an article for the, my former employer, employer well, it, the Milwaukee Journal merged with the Milwaukee Sentinel um, in 1995. So I, I wrote, I knew the uh, arts editor there, and I said, you want a story about my relationship? And he said, sure, sure. So he, I wrote a story for the Journal Sentinel, which ran on a Sunday, and he got really good play. And as I was writing it, I thought, there's a book here. And so uh, I contacted a publisher who had heard of it was very excited about it, and um, 
and said, sure, go ahead. So I wrote the, started writing and wrote really, really fast because uh, I'm a journalist. And, uh, and uh, I used all of his notes that he sent me over the years, and there were dozens of them, uh, many of them from the time I was editor. And also some articles of that were in the uh, magazine, some interviews with him, uh, talks that he'd given, and uh, articles about other things that related to his work, articles about his shows, interviews. Um, so it, 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 uh, it was finished in a fairly quick time, last, early last year, and... Um, and uh, the publisher was excited about it. Publisher was uh, Bancroft. Is Bruce Bortz is the public, actual publisher. It's a small publisher, and um, he did a couple of things that I was that surprised me. For one thing, I didn't know that he was going to publish a 64-page insert of photos and handwritten lyrics of Sondheim and. Uh, production photos and covers of a magazine and posters and a really a, a amazing uh, insert in the, and I thought it would be a little 10, 12 pages, but it turned out to be a huge thing. I, I, I supplied the, all of the material from the originals from the Sondheim Review. And then the other thing was, I didn't know this until I saw the proofs, was that uh, he, he, he published a 23-page uh, chronology of Sondheim's life, from his birth to his death, all the shows, the timetable of those, uh, his rewards he'd been given. Uh, it's really the most complete chronology I've ever seen of Sondheim's life. And so that's two elements that I are, think enhance the book a lot. Yeah, definitely. It's a treasure trove. And uh, again, the title is Sondheim and Me. Revealing a Musical Genius, and it was published October 2022, and you could pick it up. I, I know Amazon has it available, and probably most uh, solid bookstores, good bookstores, you can get it through them too, right? Yes, yeah, it's available. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, and any bookstore can order it if they don't have it already. And Bancroft Press. So... Uh, Mr. Salsini, Paul Salsini, journalist and uh, music, musical theater lover, uh, and a person who knows a lot about Stephen Sondheim, and, and is sharing some yeah, of it here today with us on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I'm happy to say. So, uh, what, what's next? What are you What are you working on now? Well, I'm still doing some um, promotion for the book um, and various things, but that's sort of died down since the book came out in October. I'm anxious to start um, something, though I made only a feeble attempt at starting it. Before I um, did this book, I was writing fiction, and the fiction was set in Tuscany, of all places, because that's where my roots are. I just became interested in it. Uh, I had relatives there. I still have a few relatives there. Um, and uh, I became, I wrote one book, and then it became a sequel, and then it became a trilogy, and then it just kept on. And I wrote, uh, there, were, there were two children's books. Um, there were ten books in all set in Tuscany. Um, some novels, some collections of stories. Uh, so I, I really 
I'm, I'm not able to go there anymore, but I still have a lot of books on my shelves, and I read a lot about Tuscany and and fiction about Tuscany, set in Tuscany. So um, I'm anxious to get back to to that era and to write fiction again. This, the Sondheim book was nonfiction, the only nonfiction book I've ever written. And, the, and is there a particular title for the series of books set in Tuscany? Um, there's uh, one of them is called a Tus- obviously a Tuscan series. It starts with uh, a book called the Cello, C I E L O, a novel of wartime Tuscany, and that was inspired by my cousin Fosca, who died last year at age ninety-four. Um, uh, she told me that during World War II, Germans occupied this village that I mentioned. And uh, everybody had to flee, go, and they fled into the hills, literally. And she and some other people uh, stayed in an abandoned farmhouse, and they had to stay there for three months while the war went on all around them. And so I thought that was an interesting story when she told me that. And I would like to have written it as nonfiction, but I couldn't spend the time there um, I didn't know Italian. Uh, I couldn't speak it or write it, um, and uh, many of the people involved would be dead. So I thought I'd write it as fiction, you know, just uh, which was I'd never written fiction before, but I did, and um, it won some awards. And these people that I had created, and there are a lot of them uh, in this story, um, the cello. Uh, but stayed in my head, and I couldn't get rid of them. I wondered what they were doing next. So I wrote a sequel, uh, and call, it's called Sparrow's Revenge, because part of the story of the original book was about uh, a partisan and his lover, and um, and who and the lover was killed uh, during the war. And so the, after that, they were still in my head. So I wrote another book uh, called... Um, Dino's story, and the boy that was just born in the first book and 10 years old in the second was now a teenager, and he was there during the flood of Florence in 1966. So guess what? After that, uh, they were still in my head, so I wrote a fourth book and a fifth book and a sixth book, and I, and with many of the same characters, but also new ones. So I called all that a Tuscan series. And then I wrote two collections of short stories after that, and two uh, children's books, and I don't know what's next, but I'm anxious to get back into that era and that, that mindset. Oh, I, I, I love it. I'm going to have to pick some of those up. And they sound ripe for uh, a series, you know, uh, of, of, yeah. of uh, maybe uh, something on a streaming service or a movie series. It sounds beautiful. Yeah, I think the first book especially uh, has a lot of people in it, and it's it's really sort of intense. I think it would make a great TV series, but I have no idea how, how to do that. Well, hopefully someone catches this conversation or another one you have yeah. and they, they grab onto it. Yeah. But, Contact me. <laughs> yeah, Paul Salsini, S-A-L-S-I-N-I. And, uh <laughs> You know, (laughs) it's a pleasure talking with you today, sir. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that uh, 
you you know about well not all but a bit of what you know about uh, Sondheim and if if anybody wants to uh, learn more about what Paul has experienced uh, pick up his book Sondheim and Me Revealing a Musical Genius thank you take care bye bye bye
And now, something from the March 20, 2023 issue of the New Yorker magazine. It's Shouts and Murmurs page, written by Emma Rathbone, titled, How to Tell if You're in a TV Show. As someone who writes for TV but lives in the real world, I've compiled a handy guide. Convenient Interruptions. In television, a conversation is always getting conveniently interrupted right after all the pertinent information has been conveyed. Two characters will have a pivotal moment, and then someone else will bust in, or the telephone will ring. In life, no one ever comes and interrupts my conversations when they get boring. Nope. I'm still just standing there with my heavy plate of potato salad, making small talk, eking it out of whole stone. Sex. In TV, people are always sneaking out in the morning after having sex, sometimes even leaving a note on the sex partner's pillow. In life, there's no way you wouldn't hear that person leaving. First of all, you'd already be awake because you stayed up all night wondering what the hell just happened. Second, even if you were asleep, You're not going to hear when someone's rustling around in your room looking for a pen among your giant pile of DVDs and your shelves full of DVDs and also your wooden bowl full of loose DVDs. Talking about something when it's really about something else. In TV shows, people often talk about something that's really about something else, like A soccer mom will get up and give a speech about soccer, but it's really about her divorce, and the disparity is used to comic effect. Has this ever happened in life even one time? Actually, I take it back. My ninth grade French teacher showed up in class one day and said that when it came to learning vocabulary, life was, quote, full of new adventures and we should be, quote, very open to them. But I'm pretty sure she was talking about the affair she was having with the principal. So I was clinging to the original meaning for dear life. Tone. In TV, there's supposed to be a consistent tone. Either you're in sex and the city, gliding through a shoal of puns and relatable problems, or you're shiting yourself with anxiety, in the sickly morning light of a show like The Wire. Haven't seen it. In life, the tone of your day can change on a dime, even in just the span of a phone call with your mom. One moment, you're in a witty ensemble family comedy, and then your mom asks you how your writing is going, and you're in the desolate mists of The Handmaid's Tale. Haven't seen it. And then you stub your toe, and you're in a split-level ranch house comedy, not a real genre, and then you go downstairs and forgive someone under a burning roof and you're in Grace Under Fire. Rousing speeches. In television, you can often solve a problem by giving a rousing speech. There's an issue, a conflict, the world is going to end, what have you, and some intractable character who is blocking the solution will be swayed by a heartfelt off-the-cuff lecture in which the pitch of the speaker's emotion will ensure that some truth is crowbarred open. In life, this hardly ever works. 
I know from personal experience that most of the time your partners and friends are simply not up for these speeches. They don't care for them. Another reason this kind of thing doesn't work in life is that people actually do not like to change their minds in front of you. Which brings me to epiphanies. In TV shows, people are always having epiphanies that herald some new way of moving forward or of being in the world that amounts to a solution to all their problems. In life, I have about a million epiphanies a day, like I should live in the moment, be more organized, be more grateful, go to the library to research pickleball, stop drinking so much wine, switch to wine coolers, just try warm wine, But the question is, do people really change? They often do in TV, but in life, I think the jury is still out. Maybe only after someone has a million of these epiphanies on the same subject do they start to fuse into something resembling a better way to be. Like, you finally, finally forgive yourself for your terrible SAT scores while waiting in line at the market. And this time, it sticks. But that's really hard to capture in a TV show. I see you laughing, but you're laughing too loud. I tried to find you, you were lost in the crowd. Girl, you kill me. I understand, don't you see? Say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, Rhonda Lee. You take the windows, paint the midnight blue. You're holding on tight to a life you outgrew. How many times can I remind you to breathe? Say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, Rhonda Lee.
Paperboy Pompadour haircut with four wrinkles on his forehead. The symbol of wokeness attached to his leather jacket's lapel. Church bells ringing, midday lunch for the town. Hoagies, salads, wraps, and soups with bottles of beer, glasses of wine, juice, water, and soda pop. This day we might have a few butterscotch tasty cakes for dessert. The weekend is almost here.
And there you have it, episode 516 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Paul Salcini, also The New Yorker magazine, writer Emma Rathbone, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, The Who, Zero Mostel, Dorothy Collins, Nicole Atkins, Elliot Smith, Brantford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.